Welcome to Arc Next Sessions, episode 33. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week, we'll be talking with Patrick Schumacher, the often controversial partner at Zaha Hadid Architects. We'll also be discussing some of the big news items this week in the world of architecture. How was everyone's week? Pretty good. Pretty good. So-so. Ken? So-so. So-so? Oh. <laughs> no, it's been fine. It's been fine. You've been posting some really excellent images of the butcher space that you've been working on. Yeah, I have to stop doing that. What, posting them on social media or? No, I just have to stop generating them because they're, they're such a time suck. You know, it takes a couple hours to do a rendering and that's not even at the highest level. So it's a little distracting. They're nice to see. But I wanted to give the, the butcher clients some sense of what I thought their space could look like. Because um, we've been dealing with, um, in Revit, there's a setting on the camera views where you could just give a kind of a, a non-mapped out sense of material finish. And it really is kind of cartoony. It's not really a, a great representation. So I wanted to give them a sense of, you know, hey, this is what I think your space could look like. She's super excited. They're blown away by them. Yeah, they look great. It looks beautiful. What about you, Donna? How have you been? Fine. Good. I can't seem to say no to anything. So I've had two different people this week contact me about sort of mentoring friends of theirs who are starting out in the architecture world. And I'm like, sure, of course. And then there's a, I, had, I went to a meeting on Monday with a group of people that are starting up potentially a design expo kind of thing locally. And I don't want to say much about it, but I was sort of called in to talk with them and, you know, sort of brain storm ideas for a sort of design biennial. And then I today agreed to go meet with someone to talk about a high school age architecture discovery program that we're going to be starting up in Indianapolis. And I just can't say no to any of these things. But I guess the the lesson from it is that's my network. I mean, that's I know these people and or they know of me because, you know, we have friends in common and you just get hooked into the community of designers and uh, these kinds of opportunities come up a lot. So I thought after the AIA National Convention, I was going to try to scale back my commitments to working with people, but I just can't seem to say no. So I'm involved in all kinds of little things relating to design. Well, the high school initiative sounds super interesting. Is that going to be directly inside of high schools or is it going to be kind of a thing for high school students outside of the actual school? It's a summer camp. It's actually a summer camp program. And when I worked for eight years in Kentucky in a the Governor's School for the Arts summer camp program for architecture students, that was a three-week residential camp. This one is a two-week day-only camp, but the reason they want to talk to me about it is they want to move it into a larger residential camp that would happen at one of the local colleges or something. So I have a lot of experience in that area. So yeah, I, I like the idea of getting to these kids when they're young and teaching them about their environment. Even if they don't all become architects, just teaching them how to look at their environment is so important at that age. Yeah, I think that's really incredible, especially because I know a few people my age who had access to architecture classes in high school, but they were almost exclusively drafting courses. They were just like, they just sat you in front of something to copy and then you just did some like very simple drafting. And there was never any discussion about anything higher level than that. And so what you're doing sounds really cool. Sounds like you're filling a very important niche. How old are the kids? This program is planned for high school age. I was really intrigued by your comment about teaching kids to look at the environment. Because what I've found is, as a dad to two young children is that when kids are really young, they actually do pay a lot of attention oh, to the environment. God, yes. And then it just starts to fade away. You know, it becomes this kind of background pattern in your life that you stop paying such close attention to. So... It sounds like what you're doing perhaps is maybe reintroducing these kids to their environment, you know, that they may not be paying attention to as much as they were when they were younger. Definitely. And I, I have to give credit to our longtime architect, Stephen Ward. We taught together in this Kentucky program, and he started this portion of the class of the curriculum called read the city. And we would walk around the city and look with the students. Why do you think this looks like this? And why do you think, you know, this place has really nice sidewalks and planters full of trees and it's shady and lovely. And when you 
cross the block, suddenly there's no more planters and the sidewalk's all broken. Like, what do you think are the things that bring that condition about? So yeah, it is kind of just teaching them again, hey, look at the story that the city will tell you if you look at it. That's awesome. It's fun. I love that. Every school should be doing that. Yeah. So what do you do with your kids? Do you show them certain things or you said you went on a bike ride this weekend? You know, I find that my kids are more showing me things that I tend to oversee. I mean, that's one of the many great things about having little kids is getting the opportunity to kind of live through their perspective, through the comments that they make about the world around them. So I feel like I learn more from them sometimes than what, you know, they learn from from us as parents. Especially it helps if you're, you know, three and a half feet tall. <laughs> it's a whole different view from I've down been, there. Uh, I've been mountain biking with my daughter lately, who's, uh, she's eight. And we've been mountain biking around this area where she does summer camp in. And it was amazing. Like she was, we were going through these crazy maze-like network of trails and she was coming across all these tiny little details that were part of the forts that her and her friends were making last year in summer camp. Oh. Nice. The kind of thing that, you know, I think you have to be a kid to kind of pick up on those tiny little details. And it was such, it was this world that made so much sense to her that was kind of so abstract to an adult. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm wistful too, because um, Angus's 12th birthday was yesterday. So, you know, he's growing out of that little kidness and becoming a a teenager. Speaking of which, I think it was someone else's birthday yesterday who's on the podcast. Uh, Who was that? (laughs) It was Johnny Depp's birthday. It is? Yeah. June 9th. Happy birthday, Paul. (laughs) Thank you. I'm, uh, yeah, I turned 40. Paul's also staunchly anti-birthday. It's a fun fact. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Yeah. Because he was never born. He actually was never born, so. But, oh man, yeah, it's going to take me a while to get used to being 40. Not that, I mean, you know, everyone I talk to that has passed that peak in the hill says that, you know, it just gets better and the 40s are great, but... Ken, are you snickering? Or Ken, are you like, yeah, that's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I keep telling myself every time I get slammed in the mat in jujitsu and get my arm broken. Yeah. It just gets better. No, did you break an arm? No, no. Okay, good. Oh, good. So how was your week, Amelia? It was really good. I actually would like to kind of take the intros of our usual episode to do a kind of quasi-endorsement style intro. I just finished this book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed which is a book about public shaming in the era of the internet and uh, social media in the era of the internet. And it is amazing. It is basically just a few case, a collection of case studies about instances of extreme shaming done mostly through Twitter and other like social media means that have completely unearthed people's secrets or scandals, however, to completely upend their careers and often lives. And sometimes for the dumbest stuff and sometimes for real nasty behavior, but almost always overblown and almost always at the mercy of an anonymous mob of people on Twitter, just like completely ripping someone apart. A few instances were probably familiar. There was a case a while back of Jonah Lair, this famous writer who had been found out to have been self-plagiarizing for a few articles that he had written. And he just like got completely wasted and was more or less like shunned from his, well, he lost his job and more or less like shunned from the society. He had, so these all these like awful cases, but the book just tries to make sense of them. And like, why is this happening? what precedents are set for using public shaming as a means of actual retributive justice to like, instead of imprisoning people, should we instead, um, you know, put them up in the digital stocks effectively. And it's a really fascinating book. The actual analysis that happens isn't super amazing. I would say that it's 
if you want to read a book for kind of the, the sheer gripping nastiness of reading these individual instances, it's great, but it doesn't say anything super profound about the state of social media shaming. However, it was really interesting. That sounds like a book of our times. With the internet now, I mean, you can't really get away with things like you used to be able to. But in addition to that, there's so many people that are still trying to or still haven't figured that out yet. Yeah. I mean, in 10 years, I think people will be much more savvy and much more careful about how they conduct themselves, knowing that there's this worldwide web out there that's ready to pounce on anything that you've done wrong. I mean, people will still get publicly shamed, but we're at this period right now where people are unaware. And the fascinating part is a lot of these instances that the book brings up are with people who don't have a very strong presence on social media, but they have, they do one misstep thing for a community that is very small, but then either vindictively or just for kicks, someone picks it up and and brings it over to someplace like Gawker or BuzzFeed. And then it becomes ballooned into this giant thing that everyone can latch onto and decide to hate on for a day before moving on to the next thing. The only problem is the effect of them hating on them for that one day lasts for that person's life. <laughs> so it's something they forget about immediately, but then the person has to bear the burden for much, much longer. I remember listening to an article or listening to a piece on this, I believe on an on a podcast, it was probably Radio Lab, and it was talking about how there are computer scientists at Google that are actually trying to implement this type of like kind of forgetfulness of memory within the web and search engines, because in a way it's unfair for people to be permanently branded with a stupid mistake they made with the web. You know, it's always going to be there. But in real life, people forgive and forget. One of the features of this book was not only talking with people who have been the subjects of public shaming, but also the businesses that have come up to kind of help people return to a normal operating existence after an instance of horrific shaming. So there's this one company that basically creates positive online content for a person so as to drown out all the negative online content that otherwise exists on them when you search them for on Google or something. So it's like this inflating of the person's online personality so to just push the crappier, older stuff to the second or third page of search results where there's this great quote from the book, only creepy people look. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was great. But the only other thing I wanted to say about this book before we move on to Schumacher and the major part of our episode is that this book, which is written by John Ronson, who also is a contributor to This American Life, and he did the most impressive press bracket for this book because by the time I got the book, I had almost read all of it because it had already been featured in various parts on all of the other podcasts and publications that I follow. And I was a little bit depressed by that fact, by like, wow, I am a demographic that this guy like knows exactly he knows I will not only buy the book, but he like goes on all of the platforms that I would otherwise want a recommendation to buy the book from. <laughs> you know what? He deserves to be publicly shamed. For that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that came up a lot in his press junket for that. Anyway, shall we move on to uh, Schumacher? Yes. Yes. So a couple weeks ago, after Patrick had penned an op-ed for us, we were able to speak with him to kind of discuss this a little bit more, his ideas behind criticism, how architectural criticism interacts with a largely non-architecturally engaged public, and the notion of star architecture, celebrity in architecture. We spoke with him shortly after he had written the op-ed, but the op-ed has just been published earlier this week. We will link to it on our show notes. 
But after that article came out, we had a chance to review it. And we spoke with Patrick to just kind of try to continue the discussion because not only is Patrick pretty well known for being very outspoken and publishing a lot of his own ideas that both interact with his work for Zaha Hadid, but also as his own theories, he's also incredibly involved in Archonnect and does not shy away from the strong arguments and discussions that go on in relation to his posts and his ideas. So we wanted to have him on to kind of continue that conversation. So why don't we listen to that now? Why don't you just give us a little spiel as to why you're in Miami? Um, yeah, we have got a few projects here, actually. So one of our first big residential towers in the U.S. is on site. And we have a second tower, which we're designing currently. And we're also still working on a parking garage in South Beach. There's an opportunity for a nice villa on the beach as well. So there's a few things. And there's also a few leads in Manhattan, where I just came from. So both speculative and kind of just checking out the sites and the current progress of projects going on there? That's right. Yes. Well, we really appreciate you uh, taking the time to kind of follow up on this multi-phase discussion that we've been going on. So to catch people up who aren't already familiar, you originally posted on your Facebook page a piece about architectural criticism and uh, in response to star architecture in particularly. The piece was entitled On Stars and Icons. And that piece we picked up, Archonnect picked up and posted it to our news. And that kind of snowballed into a much larger discussion in the comments overall about architectural discourse, the insularity of it and how it relates to a general public. And so we invited you back on again to both discuss the issue live on our podcast and also pen an op-ed for us, which will be published by the time that this interview airs. So why don't we start to delve into that a little bit more? And I know that people have a lot of reading to catch up fully with this. So can you give kind of a brief explanation of why you think this was an important topic to go after? Why the issue of star architecture was something that you wanted to kind of poke at? Yeah, because, well, the context of this has been in the making for quite a while, where there was this kind of backlash against architectural spectacles, icons, there was this backlash against celebrity culture and architecture, so-called, and a number of figures spoke out. And there's, in fact, an issue in a Spanish magazine coming up on, on the very topic, which made me think about it again, and I've contributed to that. I don't know if it's out yet. So that's an ongoing debate. And what I feel is without rehearsing the arguments I've made to that point, I mean, it's a defense of stars and icons, not that we are, in fact, aiming at icons and iconicity in our work, or that we think of ourselves as stars. That's not the point here. And that's an easy target to to, to knock these kind of ambitions and, and pretenses, if you like. But what I feel is that this backlash against mood, against what is called star architecture and, and iconic architecture is part of an overall mood swing and let's say era of low horizons, lack of ambition, which, which connects to the great stagnation I feel we're in currently. And I don't see that to be very helpful. And I've also linked that to some things I've been talking about at a few earlier points and posts, a culture which wants to turn architecture into or bring that under the spell of a political correctness, which I think is distracting us from our task and from, from our ambitions to, to innovate the built environment. And that this innovation agenda should continue even in an era which is currently kind of economically deflated. So that's the way I want to kind of 
maybe kick off this debate uh, with you guys here. So, Patrick, before we get into the uh, the meat of the issue, I was wondering if you could talk a little about why you usually release these statements on Facebook. Is that just because it's your it's your social network of choice, or is there a deeper reason behind using Facebook to get this out there? No, it's just something which uh, I got used to enjoying. A lot of colleagues and friends, you know, keeping each other informed on Facebook. And so I look up what everybody's doing, what everybody's up to. Also post images and, and news from our work, from the work of the AA, for instance, as well. So and then I just, uh, you know, sometimes say things and post things. And, you know, it's just uh, something, uh, it's a natural. It's not a particular strategy or strategic move. And that this got a more resonance and was picked up in other media is something which happened a few times now, but wasn't something which I actually expected. But I enjoy that. And I think it's 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 good to have conversations. And I find the conversations reasonably civilized and, and stimulating. So I like to write and publish and lecture and always insist on Q&A sessions to get some feedback, to get some resistance and be challenged to explain where I'm coming from. And this is for me another medium where, where, where I just enjoy this kind of feedback. And there was a lot of feedback on this and on other posts. So I enjoy that and need that to develop my thinking. Patrick, this is uh, Ken. And one of the things I appreciate about what you post and how you post on, on Facebook and other social media is that there's a, an immediacy of feedback that you don't have to wait for a pamphlet to get received by and reviewed by uh, writers and or, uh, you know, uh, books. And that's what I appreciate about. I just want to step back to what you said before regarding political correctness as it relates to the Star Architect. It seems to me that it, the criticism goes hand in hand with the with the collapse of the economy, that somehow, uh, I won't say somehow, I actually, I like your work and I like what you've written about it. I've watched a recent, or I don't know how recent, I watched a lecture and I, I like what you say about your work and about what you're trying to achieve in your work. But but I don't know if it's politically correct to suggest that when we see certain architects aligning themselves with a certain um, segment of the population that represents a very small segment of the global economy, that people are right in their criticism to wonder whether or not you actually care about, you know, the social issues, those cultural issues enter as a parametric measuring stick into your forms, into your creation of architecture when, you know, there's been many instances where people look at your work and they see where it's built in the world and who you're building for. And they kind of wonder, you know, why is it that on the one hand, you talk about neoliberalism or anarcho-capitalism, but then ZHA builds for some of the most, um, I'll just say, some of the most perceived corrupt institutions in, in sports, whether it be FIFA or, or the Olympic um, organizations that solely rely on these kinds of internal corruptions or state, you know, these you know, in Qatar, for instance, I mean, you've seen it in the news. I mean, they, the uh, Seth Blatter has to constantly beat back the criticism that, you know, there is corruption involved in that. And so when I think when people talk about it, I don't know if it's political correctness. I think it's just looking at the world and seeing who brought the economy to our knees. And then the clients that you serve, it's kind of like, I think there's a reaction to that. And you're finally getting the tail end of the blowback. So I, could you respond to that? Um 
Yes. I mean, the way we see the world is we'd like to establish a practice and expand our radius of activity into different countries, into different program domains, because I believe that like modernism, our new paradigm and approach to architecture has potential universality of application. And we want to explore that across scales, across program domains. So we basically trying to pick up as much work in whatever program domain and whatever territory in the world to explore that. And I mean, World Cups and Olympics, are, I don't think something which is inherently uh, corrupt, uh, I mean, or incredibly problematic. These are, in fact, you know, very, very popular global events. So it, it's an honor, I think, for us and anybody to participate in these ventures. I mean, there's been other projects where we've been criticized. Let's say, we've, for instance, we've worked on the uh, a cultural center in, in, in Baku. But also, I think that was a, uh, something we we're proud of and, and happy to contribute to, a, let's say, a relatively new country, which is trying to develop an, an urban culture and, and connect to the world through through institutions. So, But from our perspective, it's really, um, we would like to, uh, we can't be, uh, you know, that selective and with with a kind of, uh, with political spectacles and filters. That that we would simply couldn't thrive and couldn't couldn't work much at all. So 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 I, I think that the political constitution of our clients is something which is delivered to us by the world, and we want to participate rather than being aloof, as it were. We got in there and you know build projects, and I think with respect to the quality and contribution of our projects in the various arenas of engagement, I don't feel I have to be ashamed of or, or say that there is kind of a form of corruption involved. I mean, no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. So yeah, I, I think yes. If 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 the kind of um, this angle of criticism relative to a firm like Zadid Architects, I would find is misguided in terms of what you should expect from a firm like Zadid Architects. Patrick, I think so much of what people get animated over and what your polemics and your discussions often provoke people into doing is drawing lines. And and you're often criticized for this drawing of a line between when it's the role of the architect to do one thing, but not another. And this is always, this is the perennial, it's a discussion that is ongoing and will never be resolved really in any professional practice when ethics are involved. And it's a difficult question when the critical role often is taken nowadays, it seems, towards this kind of everything is architectural perspective. We, we've had on the podcast previously Christopher Hawthorne of the Los Angeles Times, who takes a very kind of universal approach to architectural discourse, that everything is architectural if you just make it so. And therefore, because the world we live in is a, a product of architecture in a way. And so his approach, he would never draw that line to say this is in the purview of the architectural theorist or not. In his world, in his critical practice, everything is potentially of that world. Um, we also recently had uh, an interview on the site with Paul Goldberger, formerly of the New York Times, and he characterized the architectural critic's role as more of a provocateur, someone whose role is to push people and provoke people into thinking or seeing things differently. Whereas you've been kind of more positioned on creating these types of different spheres that this is for interacting and this is for not. And instead that the idea of the, of the critic is to translate or to mediate between different parties. So I know that might be a long-winded way of explaining that there are these kind of different camps all circulating around each other, but how do you think of the architectural theorist or the architectural critic's role as a as a provocateur? How does that relate to your idea of architectural theory? Oh yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree that the, you know, uh, provocations are stimulating the debate. And I think the critic, the architectural critic is in a different place than the architect and architectural theorist, I would argue, because there's a mediation into the mass media discourse, which brings in different criteria and, and concerns. But 
what I believe in, my starting point is an understanding of a global world society, which is kind of structured according to discursive domains, domains of competency, which are distinguished on the basis of a functional differentiation, if you like. So these different function systems capture everything which goes on. So you could say to some extent for a politician, everything is political potentially. Everything can be made a political issue. And the same is that um, everything which, which goes on in the world goes on within a design space, uh, is therefore potentially a, a task for architects to engage with. But the architect is engaging this with the totality. So I'm saying what we have as a discourse, we have universal and exclusive, by the way, competency with respect to the totality of the, the built environment and the world as art, of artifacts, we saw, because I include also product design. So everything which structures our phenomenal world is in fact a designer's concern and has been designed. That includes now landscapes and so landscape designers, product designers, and we are in all these domains. So nothing is excluded, but our engagement is with respect to particular aspects of that, which is the spatial, architectural, formal, in my terms, the spatial condition as an interface of communication and the communication itself, overall communicative process, that's our aspect. And we do that, but the, let's say, political import and underpinnings and meanings of these projects are not within our domain of decision-making and, and, and competency. So yes, these projects become political, but they become political for political parties, for politicians. In terms of the micro-politics of social interaction, what takes place, that's in a sense the, the client's preserve, who is in fact hosting an institution, a communicative offering into the world, and then hires an architect to have that brought forward into an articulated spatial scenario and have, have that built. But the communication, the institution, the, its demeanor, what takes place within it is attributed not to the architect, but it's attributed to the institution, to the hosting institution. And that needs to be also remembered. It's attributed to us internally in an architectural discourse. And that's why I think we need to be clear that we're not overreaching and, let's say, wasting our time and arguing things which are not within our domain of decision and competency. So what we should criticize each other for is how we innovatively translate a new, for instance, societal offering, which is hosted by client, a client who wants to do something new uh, with the resources they claim and project forward. And we, I think we have very sophisticated clients where we wouldn't even want to substitute ourselves for arguing what, for instance, a contemporary art center should mean and be in a particular city or what a national museum should project. I mean, this is, there are competent and properly allocated decision makers who come into a dialogue with us and want us to participate and express that spatially, architecturally. So, and it's the same with all the other clients. For instance, BMW, we did the, the central building. They're very sophisticated. They know what, how, how, they, how their processes and life processes should, should move through their buildings and what they want to project and, let's say, facilitate. And that's the way we, we, we should look at our core competency and specific contribution at all these places. And I agree, everything is architectural to some extent. And the architectural aspects of these ongoings and processes are our competency. Now, of course, there are certain arenas and, and in the world where the ongoings are, you know, maybe highly questionable and then maybe we don't want to join and enter. And that's the kind of decision we make as architects and also as citizens, what we are distancing ourselves from and what we want to participate in. But looking at our oeuvre, I'm, I don't need to distance myself from anything and we could discuss specifics. And so that would be my, my position. So this doesn't mean that I'm against engagement. I'm 
very much thinking that architecture is fully engaged in innovating societal and social processes and institutional processes. And that's very, very important. But we need to distinguish the architectural element within that from the, let's say, socioeconomic element, from the political element, from, let's say, the engineering and, and technological elements, which again are due to other specialists. So, Patrick, this is Don, and that actually leads pretty nicely into my my question, which the very simple version of my question is, would Zahadid Architects ever take on a renovation project to an existing building? But the longer version of that question is, you have spoken about parametricism as a style and said that by setting it up as a style, you're setting boundary within which your research happens. And then in your original Facebook post about the stars and icons, you you use this phrase that you, the virtues of the ordinary, obscure, and underappreciated. And what I can't figure out is if you feel that parametricism has an application within things like renovation, within things, within built projects that are not using parametricism for formal innovation, but are using parametricism to either renovate something or to come up with a a way of using the building, a functionality that is not related to form. So that's a little bit complex, but the short version is, would you guys do a renovation? Do you like old buildings? (laughs) We do, and we are actually engaged. We have a number of projects where we interface and integrate existing structures. We're actually at the moment working on a hotel project in the center of Rome, which is an old Renaissance palace with a early 20th century extension, and we're converting that into a urbane contemporary hotel. So we, we don't exclude anything, but I think what, what we need to realize is, and by the way, some of the techniques of parametricism, uh, let's say of computationally empowered architectural processes, and I want to distinguish this from parametricism as an agenda and style, uh, of course, they can be used in, in all sorts of scenarios and should be used to become global best practice for all styles in a way in terms of efficiency and handling of of complex building projects. So, But I insist that in your question, there's a lingering hint that you too much distinguish functionality and process from the formal operations the building offers. And for me, that is rather artificial. So I believe that we need to orchestrate formal operations to facilitate the functions and functional processes. Uh, first of all, on the level of organizational patterns, they are not can never be divorced from form. How do you channel, aggregate and disperse and distribute and have intervisibility, for instance, between spaces? And these are organizational matters which will inevitably appear through geometry and become a, f- a formal presence. But moreover, the formal expression, legibility and the phenomenological presence is operating the functional processes because these processes are human beings navigating space, orienting and and following visual clues, uh, making needing to distinguish identities and units of interaction in their field of vision. So we can't divorce the formal from the functional in this way. And there was, you know, at the beginning of, let's say, this current research paradigm of parametricism, there was, I think, a misunderstanding where where there was in maybe an over-exaggerated distinction from postmodernism and deconstructivism, there was a slogan, performance versus representation. So the idea that we should look at performative uh, aspects of architecture in terms of organizational process, etc. And I'm saying uh, this is an artificial distinction. You know, these buildings operate and, and function through their formal offerings, as it were. So that's why I think your implied point that there could be a, a functional design to a kind of a contemporary level of best practice sophistication that would not engage the new formal repertoires, I would say is not possible. If you don't engage the formal opportunities and repertoires, uh, then you're not allowing 
your design to be best practice. So you, because you're cutting out the whole universe of possibilities and facilitation because you have a, an old style. Because again, you can't say those who are rejecting the category of style and pretend to be working only, let's say, programmatic functionally, that's a, that's a kind of self-delusion. It means that just they, they're just operating from a defunct, unreflected sort of formal constraints and basically from an old debunked style. I think that you address that actually pretty well in the op-ed that you have written for Architect. You make a comment in it. And, and again, we, we all really appreciate the fact that you engage in the comments with people. But Orhan Ayuche had posted this comment that he thinks we're sort of in a period of whatever in architecture and he's really enjoying it. But it sounds to me like you were saying, whatever you're using it for, that the forms should appear to represent, in what my mind is a very modern way, the function, that the, the forms should be a representation of that computation. Well, no, it's more than that. The forms actually function. The building functions through its forms. And because these forms are, deliver the organization, but they also deliver the articulation orientation because these buildings function through people recognizing where they are, understanding and navigating, help them to navigate through it. It also, the form of the building helps to construct the diagram of interaction, as it were, and the way the interaction processes in a complex building are, in a sense, dissected, joined and distributed. But they need to be dissected, joined and distributed in ways that are legible and transparent and navigable. And these forms we're using, if you would, for instance, try to do that on a very complex multi-use, mixed-use site with complex adjacencies and relationships, and you want to do that in a, let's say, in an austere, modernist, minimalist repertoire, you would be deficient and, and fail, and you would, in the end, deliver disorientation and dysfunctionality. So that's my, my key point here is that, and that's what trying to do in my illustrated lectures and my in some of the illustrated text to show that the general direction of what parametrism represents and the, this stylistic choice is not a kind of whimsical choice, something which there's a predilection for curves. No, there is a kind of demonstrable advantages and nearly a necessity to allow curvature into the repertoire to really handle and make navigable, legible and organizationable and organizationally pertinent a complex project. So yes, and, and the, this, the whatever uh, attitude uh, really misses the point. If, if you really think like this, then I would have to ask back uh, maybe architecture and what we're all obsessing about in terms of the design element beyond the technical element, is a kind of uh, irrelevant decorative topping, as it were. Well, but since I, that is all that we are left with, and since all the technical functionality aspects are handed over now to engineering specialists, we are challenged to really reflect what is our core competency. I think you also address this in your Stars and Icons posting that certainly the way you and Zaha Hadid Architects intends to use the tools follows within what you're saying. But there are also people who are just using the tools there. You called them charlatan epigons. They're just using the tools to make the forms and they're not using the kind of research rigor that you are using. So there's a danger that some people are falling into that. Well, again, I mean, the tools are actually also used by modernists and postmodernists because the tools like script or let's say parametric modeling with, with all the change order and variation capacity. And that's used could be used by any style. But these styles wouldn't fully utilize the, for instance, the versatility 
of these tools. They use some aspects of them. They're not fully exploiting these opportunities. They're also, by the way, not able to unable to fully exploit the engineering sophistication which has developed alongside of this finite element analysis where you now can kind of optimize structures and let them, and this optimization would lead to a very nuanced gradients of differentiation in structures. There wouldn't be the modernist mechanical repetition of elements. They would be all totally differentiated if you bring in engineering logics. But moreover, the social functionality, which is I'm what I'm really think is very, very important for us to grasp, is something which is much more challenging today. In contemporary network society, we have, you know, mixed use, multiple audience, much more dynamic event scenarios, and not only a handful of stereotypical rooms. We have to handle a much more nuanced and, and dynamic and, and versatile life process and trying to capture that. And I'm actually, you know, expanding our tool set to include crowd modeling is very, very important. Handle to get a handle on these more dynamic social processes and see how they shape space and could be shaped through space. Now, when it comes to the epigons, what they are doing, they're not using necessarily only those tools. They're using some of the formal repertoires, but in, I think, superficial, spectacle-driven way. And that is obviously distracting. And to some extent, this is commercial officers don't understand what what we're trying to achieve and just (laughs) jump onto something. But to some extent, this is also internal to the movement of people I respect. And to some extent, we have been doing this in the early stages of elaborating, let's say, an avant-garde new repertoire of geometries, forms, processes, ideas that we initially play with them. We initially just see how they could be built at all, how they could create some kind of uh, coherent uh, composition at all without a burdening as yet with this more kind of rigorous rationality of, for instance, structural, environmental, social performance criteria. So that's something which I want to, which we are getting into now when when we have um, reached a more mature stage of that paradigm and style and methodology. We need to also become self-critical because there is also that a lot of suspicion, of course, in the discipline and around the discipline about what we're doing. And we need to shape up. And I think we are in a position now to make much more mature and uh, real projects, as it were, not just, let's say, manifest or dry runs of potentials. So that also has to shift gear because there is a credibility issue if, if let's say, a decade into this style, we, we should be able now to do serious work. It's a bit like the modernists, you know, the, all of the 20s, they've done a series of manifesto structures and developed the repertoire, but it wasn't yet the competitive, let's say, set of projects demonstrating the, the superiority of the modernist projects. There were, you know, some key iconic villas, which have been achieved, you know, whether it's Villa Sauvau or the Barcelona Pavilion in 29. And I think we are already a step beyond that stage, I would argue. But we need to be self-critical. And that's why I take these criticisms and suspicions about what parametrism means and what it seemingly is misunderstood as and reduced to very, very seriously. And I need to spend effort and time to to show what this really means and, and precisely in terms of the societal agendas and processes and dynamics we're now facing. And that's why we're also applying this to urbanism, talking about uh, parametric urbanism. And I'm trying to think through how this could apply to an urbanization process, which is far less controlled top down through planning, but much more following market processes and market dynamics and how we can we still uh, follow that and run with this and yet creating urban identities and legible urban order. So these are my topics. 
one thing that you raised explicitly in the piece, in the op-ed that you wrote, which relates to this whole idea of parametricism as an ongoing research project that has kind of reached a second phase. I think that's kind of one of the key fissure points where how most people see this practice and this style and however you want to characterize parametricism as kind of this free-for-all of form. Yeah that the idea is more about just experimenting purely on a formological level and where you obviously come from a perspective that thinks that that's a quite cheapened version of what is actually going on, that instead there's this long-form research project that has really been evolving over time and that now we've reached a point where the evolution has come to a high enough point, a high enough realization to be enacted on a more serious level. I want you to try to explain then what exactly are the evaluation points that you're using to look at certain buildings that happen to be experiments of sorts in these research ventures? And how do you go about evaluating those projects as whether they've succeeded or failed in the various research ventures and research manifestos that they've set out to fulfill? Yes. I mean, the whole, let's say, movement has evolved and it's not only us, Adit Architects and AA, etc. It's, it's the whole generation of architects who've kind of matured with these ambitions and values of thinking that an architecture could have an enhanced level of complexity and could be adaptive, malleable. And so I start maybe with technical functionality because a lot of people are working in this. this it's very rich using shells and tensile structures and there's quite a few exciting uh, engineering researches as well, which coincide with what we're doing on this. So these are very, very high performance, elegant structures, what is different from the older versions of shell and tensile that we can be more versatile and irregular. Therefore, we can capture more different complex site conditions, etc. So on the level of integrating with very sophisticated engineering potentials, uh, we are in this front on the forefront. And that gives also a lot of rigor to the formal structures we're operating in. So these are constrained, these are structurally optimized forms. Yes, they fit into that. They, they have curvature, double curvature, gradients. There's a kind of congeniality and symbiosis with structural optimization. The next thing is environmental optimization parameters, where we now we can simulate and model environmental performance and have that variability of climates and microclimates, of shading elements, for instance, stretching around a curved building. Of course, implies that with each element, the sun exposure angle shifts and the element kind of mutates and you get a kind of continuously transformed and modulated facade. And that is something, a facade that in the end is more energy efficient. It is materially lighter and more efficient. And in the end will also be economically cheaper once the investment in these production technologies filed to factory have been more pervasive. So this is one set of, of researches. And also fabrication logics to inbuild into the pre-constrain the formal, the shapes, the geometries, but also the articulation patterns and details through the particular material properties and fabrication process logics, which imprint onto the physiognomy of the project. Now, for me, and this is not only Zadid Architects, these ambitions many architects share. So we, we like to express structure. We like to make environmental adaptiveness real and then also become visible and phonologically active. But the latest iteration of this, which I'm investing now in, in terms of a, a research project in various schools and also I'm setting up a PhD, a fully funded PhD set of researchers and collaborating with the university and with a firm, is this idea of a generalized life process modeling. So to get a handle on social congregation, not only circulation, but all 
forms of social interaction in space to bring them into the model and through scripted agent who react and responds and modulate their behavior relative to where they are and which threshold they cross. That's a stage which is coherent with the whole research universe we're talking about, but that's something which really gets to the core competency of architecture as the structuring of social processes through spatial arrangements, but also through visual offerings which guide and inform actors about the social offerings they encounter in space. So I'm talking about information-rich environments, and then I'm kind of testing and get feedback through implanting agents who roam the model with information and clues, and they react to this. So that's at the moment still a rather academic area of research, but with a clear project agenda, because we're working with Bureau Huppelt on this as well, to bring that into a, a professional service of a new, let's say, caliber of integracy. So that's what I'm working on. So these are things where you can see the urge of being becoming quite real and becoming quite tangible with these ambitions. These are the, the key research agendas. Sometimes it feels like the ideology of parametricism is, is aligned with the idea of artificial intelligence, that you have this investment in a system that learns, is capable of learning and then learning on basic systems and models, and then applying those learned histories to a completely blank slate, which for many reasons people find dystopic and terrifying <laughs> and also quite exciting, but you know, with many caveats. Is there an ideal scenario in which you imagine being able to kind of bring all of these different elements of parametricism together? on a, not on a blank slate, but somewhere like if you could choose a real place yes. in the world, is there some type of real setting where all of these things might ideally come together? Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting you ask that, but we've been heavily pitching and for Google campus, that would have been for me the ideal <laughs> test project, which also would, you know, show the world that this is the direction which is which is high performance because I think this is a very rich and, and complex environment. It has communicative density, of course. It has richness of internal differentiation and has an urban element to it. So that would be my ideal project. And also the potential of interfacing with Google research on a number of things because we are interested in artificial intelligence. We have not implemented this, but at AADRL, we have a lot of our students group are working with robotic self-assembly, with robotic architectural elements. I'm working with the responsive environments, which is also so, so environmental elements, which are modeled alongside the life process and interactive with life processes. They have uh, sensors and actuators and they behave and reconvene and cajole and, and, and follow and, and but what also have learning trajectories potentially. That is an interesting element, which doesn't replace, but would be a kind of layer within an, a more stable architectural environment. So that would be my absolute ideal client and project. So, and we did pitch for this and we, we created a, a but, but somebody else was more convincing. I understand. <laughs> so, and I actually at the GSD, I, I had ahead of this, not knowing that Google would make another search for an architect. I had at the GSD, uh, this 2013, I taught a studio where we had a Google campus as the in, <laughs> in, in Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley urbanism and Google campus as a topic. Patrick, um, a few weeks ago, we were we spoke with uh, Kevin Roche, and uh, one of the things that he reminded everyone is that um, I think when he was working for Saarinen, he talked about how important the client was, and I think what often gets lost in when people think about modernism is that somehow it was devoid of like responding to client needs and sight and all of these issues, and it seems though, as though that you're, the same kinds of criticisms are being leveled at you. And, you know, I don't feel that and I didn't feel that about modernism either. I think, you know, hearing you talk about the parameters and the parametricism, it, it seems, would it be fair to say that, you know, the, that 
the client, the site is deeply embedded in what you're thinking about. And and if that's my if that's my reading of what you've said thus far about how those kinds of um, societal or cultural issues kind of can affect your uh, modeling, what is it about the messenger that's not delivering the message in a way that makes sense to people that that so it can resonate with them? That's what you're you, you are deeply embedded in 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 people and site and things that matter. Yes. Uh, well. I mean, it's a struggle over and over again to try to explain how this paradigm is very versatile. It's Yes, I think it should be global in its agenda and contribution and, and should be global best practice in across all continents, climates and cultures. I don't think anybody should, any institution should be excluded from these new opportunities and sophisticated ways of handling brief and modeling life process of taking account of environmental condition, et cetera, et cetera. So that should be applicable everywhere. And I think the big difference to modernism is that, in fact, it has a much more context sensitivity because it has a capacity to adapt and integrate and, and differentiate to meet conditions. Modernism is much, much, much predicated on mechanical mass reproduction of the material elements, but also of typologies. It was a kind of universal consumption standard and, and solution, the house of minimum existence, etc., the office of you know the contemporary company. No, we don't have that. We don't have these stereotypes. What we have instead is permanent variable event scenarios. We have a kind of parametric scanning of site conditions. And we also have cultural sensitivities, climatic, of course, adaptations, etc. We're we now looking at, uh, we, for instance, one of our research projects is some kind of not biomimicry so much, but a kind of uh, vernacular mimicry, learning from the vernaculars of these worlds, because we're now interested in, in passive systems and being adaptive to local climates, because we, we, we want to have a lighter ecological footprint. And we can now handle and, and, and understand, analyze, simulate, and extend some of these evolved environmental intelligences of the vernaculars of this world, for instance, and in terms of materiality. So that will, in terms of the best practice, and I'm not saying that it's happening everywhere to the full extent, and we can be self-critical within this movement, but the agenda is clearly stated of a an adaptiveness. And this could also include the integration of cultural expectations, of course, anyway, but but perhaps even I'm not adverse to even local uh, motives and materials. And if they they can be integrated into into contemporary solution, there is something which I might call uh, parametric regionalism also evolving, where you have, for instance, a good friend of mine in China from Tongji University is working with parametric tools and within the general value system of parametricism, but is trying to fold in local traditions, craft techniques, material sensibilities. And that's, I think, very welcome. And, you know, often it seems as if, you know, we're accused of just exporting solutions irrespective to, to, to localities and we are kind of have alien impositions. And I reject that accusation. And these certainly not our intention. And if we can then debate project by project where it is, how far it has embedded itself, is adapted and where we could have gone further. I mean, that's a project by project uh, discussion. I wouldn't shy away from this. But the agenda and ambition is certainly there to make this locally relevant and locally differentiated. And the idea is also to create, uh, you know, ad urban identities which are unique with respect to place, purpose, culture. One of the things I wanted to ask you is that you said the ideal project, which leaves open to me and the things I haven't seen in your, in your office's work. And I was thinking about this in relation to what people 
Peter Zumter is going through at, at LACMA, it seems one of the things I totally hate, and having served on enough uh, neighborhood committees, I really find this kind of thing appalling. But could you ever see yourself doing a public project, say for, you know, for homes for low income or a project where it involved a significant amount of public involvement on the level that he's dealing with regarding this museum in L.A. Could you see Zaha Deed and, and Patrick uh, Schumacher involving themselves in something of that nature? Can you say it again? What is the key aspect of this project? Or? Peter Zumter's museum in um, L.A., as far as I understand, it's a public museum. So there's a lot of, there's a heavy involvement of public criticism. And what I find difficult to deal with is the famous saying is, uh, and I've said it many times on these on these podcasts, a camel is a horse designed by committee. So, you know, that thing that we intend to design, when you get enough people with different voices involved, it becomes something completely opposite of what you intended. Yes. Well, Well, I think the way I see this is there should be a relatively clear division of labor with respect to the architect and his or her client. I'm willing to receive, you know, changes, orders, criticisms uh, on the level of, you know, these spaces don't feel right. This space is in the wrong place. Uh, my processes, I can't project my social processes into what you're offering here. This needs to change. The entrance needs to be there. All of these we would have to take up and, and work where there is a kind of criticism from and a rejection of design solutions from the client's side and a restatement of their purposes and expectations with respect to the event structure, etc. And But what the client shouldn't do is take over the form making and the solution offering. So we we would then say, yes, if, if they would say, what you have to make this tower at this point or make it this steeple or specific ideas, I want this window in this shape at this point, then there would be a, a revolt and the breakdown of the relationship. But if they were saying that we need to be able to see that exterior space from that space, then we can answer this with a window design or with an opening. So that's the way the relationship, and if the relationship exists, then I don't mind if that client input comes through a committee or, I mean, but designed by a committee in a sense that everybody gets a, a particular element or item or motif, that obviously doesn't work. So so and I sometimes find we rarely had this problem in Europe and, and America and in most advanced countries, at least. We sometimes have that where there's this full understanding of, of a clear division of labor and of responsibilities. Sometimes in the Middle East and, and China, and let's say slightly less developed regions, you don't have that understanding fully yet where the client maybe feels that they can impose or co-design the project. And that becomes troublesome indeed and, and problematic. But that's where we have to where we have to kind of educate the client and also kind of insist that there is division of labor here and, and the design has to be the, the, the kind of uh, redesign and the solution at any point must be 100% our solution. Great. Patrick, just have a, we kind of asked this last question in our podcast and I just wanted to ask you this. What are you reading and who are you listening to? Or what kind of music are you listening to? Music, well, <laughs> it's interesting. Um, actually, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts, uh, econ talk okay. amongst them. <laughs> <laughs> to keep, which is very convenient and good to, good to be updated with all you know there's so much going on, on online which is you know LSE public lectures I'm listening to etc etc musically um, I've just in the last few years I've built this kind of incredibly deep and dense collection of classical music 
including 20th century, starting somewhere, let's say, starting with, with Wagner and all the way forward to today. And, and that's great with iTunes. So I'm listening a lot to that and I have various playlists I'm, I've generated and I'm continuously searching and evolving that. So, so that's my musical world. I've been in many other <laughs> musical worlds. I was, you know, I, I love hip hop and a lot of that intensity of collage and playfulness. I've been heavily into that in the late 80s, 90s. I've been to, in all sorts of directions in music. But recently it's been the whole world of classical music as well as contemporary classic. And who are you reading? Reading, well, it's, uh, it's quite widely spread. Since 2008, I've gone back a lot to economics and, and politics. So I've absorbed a lot of the debates and discussions and you know I'm, I'm a great fan of Mises and Hayek, Rothbard, the whole I'm very interested in new institutional economics. I've been always as a lifelong interest in sociology and uh, socioeconomic issues so of course I've but I've gone through these oeuvres of Habermas and Luhmann, etc. Sometimes every now and then I go a bit back to this. But I had also on the side, I've done a bit of uh, formal economic studies recently. I did an executive uh, MBA to understand neoclassical economics and business processes, partly also to do to reorient myself and the firm in, in this world. And But it's also an intellectual curiosity. So yeah, it's primarily uh, sociology, politics, economics, interested also in, in artificial intelligence and new biology and the sciences. Uh, sometimes I'm reading philosophically. I recently discovered an interesting parallel between my aesthetic theory and certain directions in moral philosophy. Things like this. So, <laughs> <laughs> Is there one text or um, book or piece in particular that has guided your, uh, or that you would recommend for people who are not as familiar with parametricism to kind of kick them off on a theoretical level? Well, yes. I mean, I can highly recommend my books. I'm mean, really <laughs> worthwhile. Can't recommend those, something else. <laughs> uh, you know, it's something which you could use on many levels, including if you want to have an overview over the history of architecture and the great milestones of architectural theory. I've rehearsed them in my books. But yes, in terms of, I mean, I like, by the way, a piece of incredible architectural theory, uh, Semper's great book on styles and tectonic form. I mean, that's been... Yeah. Something I've read and absorbed, and, and uh, it, it, it's also been then kind of informing my work. I would just recommend uh, Hayek. I think it's fascinating and very pertinent with respect to the next stage of this civilization of how there might be a, a breakthrough and breakout of this current stagnation. I think it's in the direction of Hayekian political and, and economic philosophy, libertarianism. I find his work incredibly stimulating. So Patrick, it sounds like you never stop working. So I hope that you get some time out on the beach. You're in Miami. Go to the beach and, and you know, take a magazine, okay? And just relax. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Patrick. It was great having you on and um, best of luck and keep engaging. We hope you keep the discussion going. Thanks so much. It was stimulating. Good fun. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank Bye. you, Patrick. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. That was our conversation with Patrick Schumacher. What did everybody think? He talks a lot. <laughs> he does. <laughs> He's a Which prolific guy. What... He's a prolific guy. Yeah, I wanted to keep it brief because I know, I mean, we talk, he talks for an hour, hour and five minutes. He, he talked for an hour and five minutes. So, I mean, it's a shame that he got to his, um, his political point kind of towards the end of the conversation. I wish he would have got that a little bit further into the conversation rather than towards the end. But, you know, it's hard to argue 
with him about the architecture side of his points and his, you know, his criticisms of the critics. Um, I, I, I tend to agree when he sticks with architecture. I tend to actually agree with his points that I think his general, at least the takeaway I got after listening to it again and thinking about what he had said is that none of the criticisms tend to focus on the architecture itself. It's always out, It's always things outside of architecture. So even his specific criticism of that one architectural critic, I've read some of his other work and he wrote a piece about the expo um, that we were going to talk about uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I thought, you know, it's all well and good to discuss the futility of an effort and talk about how much money was spent to do something, but it didn't really get at the architecture. And at, at some level, he's right. I mean, it would be nice to if the public could be informed about the architecture and even, you know, uh, but at the same time, I go and I think about Amelia's point that everything from Christopher Hawthorne's point of view um, is related to architecture. So on the one hand, his point is, is I think, pretty apt to suggest that the architectural critics don't talk enough about architecture. But conversely, I would say he doesn't care enough about the issues that resonate with people like on the website and, and some of the points that we were making, especially in light of the fact that the people I made mention of in, in when my first question to him about the corruption in, in, in FIFA are now gone. Within two weeks of our discussion, you know, corruption charges have been filed against half of that organization. And yet uh, people still want to defend doing work for these kinds of organizations. And I think it's appropriate to ask those questions about what do you represent when you're working for someone who's such a piece of shit? I mean, I think there's a there was someone who's some public, you know, there's some defender on the on, on Patrick's op-ed piece, someone who vocally expressed vigorously or rigorously or whatever defended Patrick. But at the same time, I mean, why don't we defend Albert Speer? Are we going to start saying, well, his work is has value, even though he worked, did all this work for Hitler? I mean, I think the criticism when you work for governments and organizations that are ultimately not benefiting society and at large, you know, and Sorry, but Patrick's German. He should know that history. I mean, he should be self-aware enough to realize that it's not always just about architecture as much as he wants to make it kind of insular. Um, it's kind of folded up into every aspect of our life. So it can't be the perfect thing that he wants it to be. You know, yeah, I agree with your distinction here, Ken, that when you talk about the architecture, when Patrick talks about the architecture, I mostly agree with everything he's saying. And I, I, I keep relating it to um, uh, this sort of optimism of the modern era, right? That we've had discussions on Archonnect about this back and forth on and on and on endlessly, that the modernism at its heart was optimistic about the future. We were trying to build a better world. And then uh, these days, we so many people look at it and say, oh, it's all just cold, inhumane work. In the op-ed, Patrick uses the term, we're in an era of low horizons, or sorry, not in the op-ed, in the, in the interview, he uses the term, we're in an era of low horizons. And I feel like that resonates in two ways. In one way, I think it's true that, that certainly in the United States, we just don't seem to have these big goals as a country anymore to do things like the space program, the interstate highway system. And it makes me sad to think that we're not optimistic about how we could improve the world through the built things that we do, the projects that we do. Then on the other hand, I think about somewhere like Qatar, where apparently there's a country there that's incredibly corrupt and there's a there's a government doing, you know, doing a big project and are, they're optimistic about it, obviously. This relates a little bit to the uh, endorsement I'm going to make later. So I'll just maybe stop and, and say that I feel very conflicted about it all because the architecture is amazing and I love the architecture and I love the way that we're he's trying to use the tools to their absolute best and highest use to make the 
best outcomes for everyone. I just am not sure that the, those outcomes will trickle down to everyone. My reaction was overall, I just wanted to commend Patrick even more for taking the time to discuss this with us, because I don't think that that opportunity would have been even a consideration from a lot of people on Patrick's similar level. Um, however, I would say that any comparison to be made, despite the histories and the politics involved in any of Zahadid Architects' projects and politically tenuous territory, I don't think any comparison to any Nazi equivalency is really justified once we're thinking about what type of actual regime and the historical context that was taking place there that over actually oversaw the work being done. I don't think that there's really any help to make that comparison there. However, I do think that it shouldn't make any change in how we're able to look at the work as it's actually being involved on the ground, um, while also being aware of historical context. But one thing that I wish I had asked Patrick during the actual interview, um, he brings it up near the end, is I wanted him to elaborate a little bit more on how his work actually is aligning with the moral philosophy he was reading that he referenced at the end. That is the that is kind of just a hanger on to the conversation that I wish we had, had more time to discuss. Yeah, I second the comments about him joining us in this conversation. I think it's uh, completely addressing or not addressing, you know, his particular opinions, whether you agree with them or not. The fact that he is engaging with participants on Archonnect in the discussions and coming onto our show to talk about his thoughts in more detail is uh, is very respectable, very admirable. And if if more architects did that, it would just be better for everyone, you know, to have that. And it also, I mean, when, when an architect has strong opinions about something and then they engage in a discussion with people that may or may not agree with them, it adds a level of humanity and just makes the, the discussion more respectable from all sides, I believe. And I think it goes to what one of the original posts in the Stars and I points in the Stars and Icons post, which was there's a discussion that happens within architecture where we all speak the same language and we don't have to include every aspect of the world in that discussion. And then there are discussions that happen where with the general population and where our work interfaces with that population. And I you know, I, I think that, that Zaha Hadid Architects obviously has done amazing work within the realm of architecture. And I love that, that yeah, that Patrick is so willing to discuss it. And I do wish that more of that kind of inter-architecture discussion was happening at a serious level rather than just sort of internet and Twitter snark, you know, because it's it's amazingly generous for people to talk about the whys and the, the meanings behind their work. So I also commend Patrick for coming on and for trying to continue those discussions. But then I do think that as a discipline, we have to be better at steering the discussions that are happening outside of the discipline, you know, and making sure that we're, we're being understood. Absolutely. All right. Well, why don't we move on to the news? There's been uh, a few big items in the news this week. And on today's show, we're going to try a slightly different approach in talking about the news rather than discussing each news as a group. We're going to quickly mention a few of the more prominent news items and we'll each share a very quick opinion on each item. This week, we'll start out with the, the Cooper Union uh, news, specifically uh, five Cooper Union trustees had just resigned, including Daniel Liebskind, Francois de Manil, former board chairman and real estate manager Mark Epstein, Vassar College president Catherine Hill, and investment banker Monica Wagner. According to Hyperallergic, where we got the, uh, the news source originally, three out of the five people that resigned were definitely in support of the uh, tuition and in support of the president of uh, Cooper Union. So what, what does everybody think about, about these things? Donna, 
What, what are you thinking? I'm confused by the Cooper Union. The letters that were posted on Hyperallergic and have been in the news, uh, I just find very confusing. I'm, I really think it's a, obviously, as in most situations, it's a very complex interplay of power and money and influence and all of these things that we can't ever know the whole story on. I would desperately love to see Cooper go back to not having tuition anymore. I, I think that the, the use of the term scholarship program is pretty trying to cover up the fact that it's that it was tuition free for 150 years and now it's not. And that's a terrible kind of, of it's just a terrible, tragic situation for the school. Ken, I know that you have some strong opinions on this topic. Well, knowing that the students are pretty much on top of this and, and are quick to point out who the people are that are actually resigning from the board are actually supporters of the president and supporters of the tuition, it seems to suggest at least a direction where they're headed. And one of the parts of the news that I have read about what happened is that the board president, I think, one of the board members, Epstein, apparently contacted the attorney general and said, if we got rid of the Cooper Union president, would you stop the investigation? So when that kind of hand is is tipped, if that's true, and there's something revealing about that in and of itself, so that they might be the rats jumping the ship, and hopefully the the remaining board members, uh, of which uh, one is uh, Liz Diller, hopefully that might mean they're rethinking a couple of things. Maybe they're going to get rid of the president and then revert to some different system, maybe reversing course altogether and going back to what they had prior? Um, don't know. But um, I think it's telling the letters, particularly from one of the, uh, I think it was Monica Vash, Vasher, who really kind of lashed out at the students and the, the protest movement in general as being bad for the school. And uh, that's only going to stoke the, uh, and that's only going to make that student population who is pro who are protesting this much stronger to know that they are thought of in such a low regard by people who are actually leaving and not being part of the solution. So the student relationship here is really fraught. Um, Donna, first, I want to agree completely with what you're saying about how so much of this has been happening weirdly behind closed doors, and it's so fraught and so complicated that there's a lot that cannot be fully respectfully done justice to in terms of informing exactly what's been going on, how this drastic situation even came about after such an illustrious history of, yeah, tuition, scholarship, whatever, free, you know, free education. I will say, though, that one thing I think is important to add is that often in the relationship between the student and the administrators in this in this system or the um, or the trustees, that they'll be kind of like hands off. This has been remarkably violent, Ken, based on what you just said about the kind of antagonistic comments based on one of the people who resigned one of their letters. There's also been a few pointed comments by, I believe, the uh, former board chairman, Mark Epstein, and others who have kind of criticized the student, the alums, for not giving enough money to the Cooper Union in order to allow that tradition to be continued of the tuition-free tradition. And so in, in effect, blaming alum for not giving money when in fact they also might, if they withdraw their trustee position and they're no longer giving to the school, then they are also effectively doing the same thing, especially because I believe both Epstein and Leapskin are alumni of the school. And so if they withdraw their contributions, they're effectively doing the same thing as they're criticizing the students for, which is not, or the alumni for, for not giving enough after they graduate and apparently therefore sabotaging the, the value of the school. So it's tragic, but man, complicated. Complicated indeed. Okay, moving on to the next story. This is definitely the biggest story of the week and likely the biggest story this year in architecture, I think. As we reported uh, fairly recently, Big was selected to take over Norman Foster's job as uh, architect of Two World Trade Center. So this week we saw 
renderings of the of the proposed tower, which consists of uh, basically seven stack boxes, which is a kind of a formal approach that we've begun to become familiar with in the media these days. What's everyone's take on this? The stacked boxes. Yes. I loved seeing all of the like various levels of either really elaborate or really just sketchy pictures that came into the comments of people being like, I've seen this before. It's here, 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 and here. And all of the, and like the Sanaa building and all of these other similar styles, at least very uh, immediately the reaction being, it's exactly like that. I think like my first reaction, just like, wow, okay, that looks like that fits there. I have no real visceral response to it, unlike so many of the commenters. However, I do just want to say, I think it's awesome that they decided to put a news ticker on the underside of each cantilevered box, mostly because it really strikes as like a kind of literal turning of turns of Times Square on its side, while also being just kind of like weirdly referential of some dystopic future news scenario where we're constantly lambasting people with um, every every type of new information that they need to know. So any type of flashy big video aside, like I'm I'm still kind of like nonplussed. Donna, what do you think? I still am excited about what a, to me a paradigm shift this is to go from foster to big. I'm just excited about it. I, I, I just am accepting, like I said in my AIA talk, I'm embracing mortality at this point. And if, if some things are moving on and new things are coming in, I'm embracing it. But I just wanted to point to the um, the video, which we all know that big does these amazing little films for all of their projects. And um, on Twitter, Fred Sharman, who tweets as 765, posted this, and I'm just going to read it because I think it's perfect. I agree completely. It says, I am in awe of the skill with which the signifiers are orchestrated. If architecture results as a side effect, so be it. And that's a comment about the video in particular. And you got you have to watch the video. It is perfectly done. Which we have to credit Squint Opera, actually, who made that video. It's so good. It really is. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about the change. Ken, what do you think? I think, you know, from different angles, I'm interested. And then in other angles, I'm not. I'm interested to see what this looks like juxtaposed against the other buildings, especially World Trade Center 1. I'm just curious. It's kind of still settling in as an idea. I'm a little ambivalent about it right at the moment. I think the hokiest part about it is the the ticker underneath the the edge of the building. I agree. I love it. <laughs> love it. You know that initially struck me as just something they threw into the uh, into the animation as a last uh, kind of a spontaneous decision, but it would be great if they kept that. Yeah, just because the image of then a bunch of tourists standing directly underneath a cantilevered side, just staring up at the bottom of a building and just being kind of hypnotized by it. I think that would be. I think just for the for the weirdness that that creates, totally worth it. Hashtag I look up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. But you know, inevitably people will hack into it and that's what I'm excited for. (laughs) Yeah. All right. And uh, lastly, four years and a half billion dollars later, the Red Cross has only built six houses in in Haiti. Meanwhile, they're publicly celebrating having housed 130,000 people. Have you guys all, all had a chance to read this? Yeah, I I actually feel like I'm close to this one. I have a very good friend who works for the Red Cross locally, and this article was a hatchet job. And sorry, I mean, ProPublica is a pretty well-respected news outlet, and NPR was related to it, and NPR is also very well-respected. But every bit of the article is phrased in a way that makes it sound like this is a huge scandal, when in fact, there's an enormous backstory. And again, we're talking about what's going on at Cooper. There's an enormous backstory about Red Cross saying, we're going to build this new city, essentially, of however many hundred houses. And then when they start to get on the ground and realize the conditions that have to be addressed in Haiti, they can make the choice to either go in like 
white colonialists and railroad over everyone's wishes there and build the damn houses because that's what they said they were going to do. Or they can look at the conditions on the ground and say, you know what? They don't need new houses in a remote location. What they need are things like tarps in the short term and construction skills in the long term so that they can fix the houses they have already so that their urban setting can remain so that their sense of community built around structure can remain. The, the ProPublica piece did not tell the entire story. And I think anyone who has ever dealt with any kind of disaster assistance after the fact were finally becoming smart enough to have the emotional intelligence to realize that you can't just go in and bulldoze things over. You have to work with the existing structures in place or else it's never going to work. And you're going to end up building something that nobody uses, that everybody hates, that ends up causing a second wave of disaster. So yeah, sorry, that was my rant. I'm done. No, those were great points. <laughs> Amelia, someone else, what do you guys think? I absolutely have no particular reason to, I'm not involved. I have no, really have no personal connection to the story other than the idea that what I thought it was an important piece towards was just kind of pointing attention towards what otherwise is a very opaque process of charity dealings, and these large scale initiatives that do inevitably encounter incredibly complicated scenarios once they actually try to get put into practice. So Don, I would not discount anything that you said about like how this is incredibly complicated and we shouldn't criticize the Red Cross simply for not meeting its goals when the inability to meet those specific goals was just because of how it really was. And they shouldn't have, they should have simply restated those goals after the fact they realized that this wasn't going to be actually a good thing in the end if they were going to try to just force it to happen. I definitely agree that the the style in which the piece was written and the way it kind of opens does give this kind of foregone conclusion tone to it that we've already decided to to use this as kind of a an example to make an example out of the situation. But overall, I don't know enough about exactly the real. I, I feel like I still don't know enough about the reality that has happened on the ground to really continue to try to make any criticisms. But I just would think that this is a very important piece for kind of drawing attention towards that opaqueness and lack of transparency, just to really drive home the point with basic synonyms that this is not how the charity system should be run if we can't understand it and it can't be held accountable in these ways. Ken, do you have any thoughts? Well, I mean, I've, I've started to come to realize that part of my problem with charities is that in times like these, when they're increasingly becoming, we're depending on them more than we, we should, because I think most governments should be doing the work that these groups are doing and are, that we have become so complacent around holding our governments accountable to the basic needs of our citizens that we rely on charity organizations to do essentially what is the government's role. And I, I wonder, you know, when, when it says that certain groups stop fundraising after a certain point because they made their, they raised enough money, yet the Red Cross kept continuing to fundraise even after and probably fundraising off the same tragedy. It does make you wonder, these organizations have boards and they're accountable to something, they're, they're, but they're not accountable to you or I. So it does become difficult to, you know, think about the future tragedies. It does become difficult when stories like this come out, if they're not investigated thoroughly, that people start to become even cynical about the charity groups that they're sending their money to. So if you can't trust your government and you can't trust your charitable organizations to do the work that they've said that they would do, then who do you trust? And it just doesn't make any sense. So I think they need to be transparent about where their money is going, how they fundraise, what happens, you know, after they're done fundraising. Where does that money go? I mean, do they have to spend it down in order to raise more money? I mean, can they just sit in a bank account and wait for a rainy day? I mean, how does that money actually hit the ground and actually benefit people? All right. Well, those were the three news topics that were bringing into the podcast this week. I'm sure many of you out there listening have your own opinions. 
and uh, we heartily in invite you to join in on the discussion on our connect there's a lot of comments from our members in the news posts so check them out we'll link to them from the show notes of this episode on to endorsements Amelia, do you have anything to endorse this week? I do. I have a piece that was a long time coming. It is a kind of redux and curated version of my interview with Kevin Roche, who we previously featured the interview of um, on the podcast in two separate parts. It was a pretty long interview. And because of the length and because of Roche's stature and because of just having the content be as exciting as it was to us, we wanted to try to approach it in a more curated way and kind of build together both an audio and a, a written editorial piece um, and devoted to Roche. So I would like to point readers towards that feature. It went live today. It's called The Forever Unfinished Business, Curated Thoughts from Our Conversation with Kevin Roche. And even though this did take quite some time just to simply extract the sound files from the overall conversation, it was never exhausting to keep hearing Roche's statements on these things. I was marveling not only at how simply he was able to put his words and quickly comment on whatever topic I threw at him. He was very able to comment on things very specifically and also from the context of a multi-century spanning career. So I was just really impressed with the interview and I'm glad we got to feature it again. Again, the article, which we'll link to in the show notes, is called The Forever Unfinished Business, Curated Thoughts from Our Conversation with Kevin Roche. Yeah, this is a great piece. It's a real gift, I think, to the architecture community for him to share such such wisdom through the years of, of uh, experience working as an architect in such a, a successful career. I mean, it's. Uh, I hope we can do more of these with some Absolutely. of the other people that we're, mm -hmm. that we're talking with. Yeah, I would endorse it too. I mean, it was a fantastic piece and it just went up today. And as soon as it went up, I just thought, oh, this isn't amazing. It is a gift. It's wonderful. So I, I've already been sharing it with some people who I know have an interest in Kevin Roche. The other thing I wanted to endorse this week is something that's not on Arcanet. It's a year and a half old blog post by Daniel K. Hertz on his own blog, danielkhertz.com. And the article is called, Why is Urbanism So White? And I read this last week and very much it felt chagrined at how well it pegged me for being a white urbanist who is not understanding the full scope of urbanism questions that we have to face in our country, specifically in the United States. And one of the things it just, it, it points out that Planetizen did a uh, top 100 urban thinkers issue or, or article, and none of them was African-American, not a single black person on the top 100 urban thinkers. So it's one of those, you know, this article opened my eyes and made me realize some mistakes I'm making. So I would like to point it out to people who are thinking about urbanism and how to improve our cities. And one of the things that it talks about is how you're frequently talking to communities who have seen the government only do harm to them. So for example, blasting a, a interstate through a neighborhood and displacing all those families, the people who are within those families or our children and generational advancements of those families are not likely to trust government as much as people who have only seen the benefit then of that freeway. They're going to love thinking that the government can do this great big projects and not be suspicious of the motives behind those projects. And some people will be for good reason. So it, it's a great article called Why is Urbanism So White by Daniel K. Hertz. And um, I encourage people to go read it. Yeah, it had a good impact on me. Paul, do you have anything to endorse this week? You know, I've got an endorsement that is not on the site as well, just like Donna. I'd like to endorse uh, Jai and Jai Gallery in downtown, in Chinatown, Los Angeles. You know, I was really surprised to have not known about this gallery when I met the, the owners and gallerists at our party at the VDL house last month. And I've since become familiar with, with their shows and, and what they do. And it is 
awesome. And I think anybody that comes to Arknack, listens to our show, would be really interested in in checking out what they're doing, especially if you're in LA. But we're excited to be uh, kind of... Uh, joining forces with them and doing something really fun this summer, which I'm not going to get into right now, but we will let people know as time progresses. And yeah, so stay tuned for something in September in uh, downtown LA, Arconnect and Jai and Jai. And until then, check out Jai and Jai and see some of their upcoming events. And Jimenez Lai has a show coming up that he's currently working on, Michelangelo style. You'll have to check it out to see what I mean. But yeah, that's that's my endorsement for the week. Uh, just to give you a kind of a visual, it's him suspended upside down in the gallery doing his amazing illustration work, but you'll have to see it to, to get it. Oh, what a great teaser that is. So yeah, September, we'll look for it. Yes. All right. Well, that was our episode. How do you guys uh, like our new format for discussing news? Rapid fire. I like it. We need to come up with a catchy term for it, though. Like, we're going to do this rapid fire. We're going to do this some some catchy I'm term. I'm thinking of yeah. some combination with, like, hot potato and a hot take. Something yeah, about, like, nice. passing while also being, like, a quick reaction. What about hardball? <laughs> I think that's taken. I think oh, that's okay. taken. Softball? <laughs> I don't think we want that. Well, for those of you listening, let us know what you think. Do you like it more than our uh, than our normal discussion of the news? Well, thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. Also, please send us feedback to uh, connect at ArcConnect.com if you have anything to share. Let us know what you think about the uh, about our new news discussion format, what you think about the length of the show, what you think about whatever. We really appreciate any kind of feedback. And uh, you can also give us some feedback on iTunes. Subscribe to us and give us a rating and review on iTunes. We pay close attention to that as well. So again, thanks for listening. Thanks to my co-hosts. And until next week, talk to you then. See you then. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.